The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. To be with friends in the swirling world that we live. Isn't it interesting? Something, it really teaches us something about the mind, something as simple as uh, a willingness to be intimate with the sound of a bell. We can't really do that without, to some degree, being intimate with our lives which means being intimate, being aware, or more exposed to all the joys and all the sorrows, all the vulnerability. We think we can kind of pick and choose that I'll be intimate, I'll connect with this pleasant thing, like, you know, you see a beautiful sunset, or you have a nice experience with a friend, and you really, oh yeah, this experience I'm willing to put down the armor, I'm willing to be real and connect. But then we end up being sensitive to the whole thing. Or the other is true too, like you see dog poop on the sidewalk or an irritating person or whatever it is, you read the news, and there's that tendency to withdraw, to close down. And we think, well, I can just close down to that irritable, that difficult, that bad experience, but I'm going to stay open to the rest of my life. But it doesn't work that way. If our mind says no, in any moment, right, it's moment by moment, so it's not like one or the other forever. But whenever our mind says no, well, it says no. It closes down. It pulls back. And whenever our heart or mind says yes, well, then it's saying yes. And it's a different, it's a different mind. And this is one of the things that studying the mind reveals. It always sounds funny when you read it as a philosophical statement, like in Buddhism, people who practice, you know, they'll talk about a moment of mind. And they talk about the mind as a sequence of moments. A mind, the mind, exists moment by moment by moment. It's not like when we talk about emptiness or the impersonal nature, part of what we mean is it's not that there isn't a somebody, it just means whatever we mean by somebody is just that for that moment. And then the next moment, it's a different mind. Now there's a lot of there's a conditional nature, there's some continuity between one moment of mind and the next moment of mind. This is the conditioning process where this moment of mind is conditioning the next moment of mind. You could say it's like leaving a legacy for the next moment of mind. But this next moment of mind is not the previous moment of mind. So if we're in a moment of mind where the mind is in that mode of saying yes to something, yes to the sound of the bell, like 
because generally, you know, for most people, it's a relatively pleasant sound. So it's relatively easy for the mind to be invited to really be open and undefended and interested and intimate and not judging the sound, right? So not fragmented, but just wholly there with the hearing. But then a lot of other things come online, like things we've been repressing, not wanting to feel. I just was uh, leading the residential retreat. We use a nice retreat center out about 70 miles away. They actually had a tornado, one of those storms that blew through. I think it was early September or late August. You remember it was in the news, a bunch of tornadoes in the Faribault area and around Lake Elysian, where this retreat center, Metta Meditation Center, is just on the uh, east side of Lake Elysian, which is about 30 miles or 40 miles west of Faribault, if you can picture that. So many trees were down. But it's, it's, it was a nice retreat. Shelley Graff, our associate director, and I led the retreat. And uh, we always get sensitive. You know, we don't, on retreat, we're not really talking much. And we shut our phones down. And uh, so then when we come back from retreat, we're just more sensitive. And we're sensitive. You can't help but be sensitive to both what's beautiful and sensitive to what's irritating. And this is really the, the general thrust of the practice, right? The Buddha taught a lot of different meditation and ways of working with the mind, but initially what we're doing more than anything is we're training the mind to be really awake, really sensitive. And we always think that's a good idea, but we always imagine imagining we're going to be sensitive to things we want to be sensitive to, but we're sensitive to everything, like all the unresolved pain in our body. If that's not enough, all the unresolved pain in our communities, there's a lot of that. Right? So even if you have a pretty privileged life, we're around a bunch of folks that aren't doing very well. And when we become sensitive, we become sensitive. Sensitive means saying yes. Right? The mind is more in the habit of saying yes. It feels like this now. The sounds are like this now. Seeing is like this now. The mental activity, the emotional activity is like this now. That's what sensitive means. Being insensitive, being distracted, being superficial, being disconnected, being deluded, that means saying no. Whether we're doing it consciously or not, the strategy the mind is operating with in that moment is like, My strategy for happiness is to not be here. So I'm disconnecting. I'm staying superficial. I'm keeping busy. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I'm filling the space of my mind with stuff that I can get lost in so I don't actually have to be saying yes to what's here and now. And what's here and now is always in terms of what the body knows, the five physical senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touches, right? And we know life, we know the world through the thinking mind, the imagining mind. Those are the only six ways we can say yes. So when we say yes, we're taking, we're saying yes to the sensitivity to mental activity 
and bodily activity, bodily activity being the five senses. And the path of practice is to say yes, because this is the kicker, you can't really survive as a sensitive being without a lot of love and wisdom. Try it. <laughs> you know, when, if, if we give away all your distractions, it's really hard to be a human being. Try it. So either we crash, you know, and we go back to our habits of saying no and all the creative but unhelpful ways we say no to life, no to our experience, or we develop wisdom and love or wisdom and compassion. And so that, that's, that's sort of a shorthand way of understanding the path the Buddha laid out. Get really sensitive, realize that's really hard to handle, and realize the only way to survive is to become more wise, more kind. And the thing is, there's no going back. Once we sense how insensitive we've been, how distracted we've been, how disconnected we've been, how closed down we've been, it's hard to justify going back to being numb, to being closed down, to being distracted. When we're distracted, it's very easy to keep living in ways, excuse me, that promote distraction and superficiality. But once we've stepped outside, at least to some degree, regularly enough, it's like, oh yeah, that, there's a sense of how stressful that strategy for a living is to stay busy, to stay disconnected, to stay distracted. So then it's a question, how do I handle the sensitivity? And one thing you see for people like who are kind of, this is sort of the middle place in spiritual practice where We've, we've developed a taste for sensitivity, but we're finding a lot of what we're sensitive to hard to handle. So then it's sort of like, you know, I don't think I'm going to hang out with that person anymore. I don't think I can watch those kind of movies anymore. I don't think I can be in that kind of setting anymore. And you see this with Buddhist practitioners. They kind of back themselves in a corner. It's like, I can only be around sweet people in sweet places, with sweet conditions, you know? Then I'm totally okay being wide open and sensitive, you know? If I'm in a heaven realm where everything's heavenly, you know, I can be really awake, really open, really sensitive, really feel what I... But that means actually we can't be in the world because the world's not always or even often heavenly. It's all over the place, hopefully... Everyone gets moments of pleasant conditions, but some people don't get too many of those moments. You know? And some periods of time are quite difficult during breakups, during illness, during financial struggles. You know? When we're trying to help other people who are being oppressed or being mistreated or you know, have a serious illness or in the dying process, it's really hard like, well, what does sensitivity look like now? What, what is needed to remain sensitive? And it's exactly that kind of curiosity which helps our practice, that question. Like, I don't 
I don't feel, it doesn't feel right to go in the direction of distraction. So I don't want to lose the sensitivity, the intimacy, the simple, kind presence. But I'm finding it really hard in this moment to remain open. I want to solidify around a fixed view. I want to plaster some opinion on the situation and kind of get tight with self-righteousness. Or I just want to think about silly things, you know, whatever it might be. It's amazing how much time we spend about sports or movies or this or that, kitchen countertypes. I mean, it's just these details that we all know in the big picture when we're dying not going to matter, you know, whether we got quartz or corian, is that the other sort of one, you know, or bamboo flooring or maple flooring or shag rug or, you know, it doesn't, it's not that we get away with not making these choices, but we, it's pretty clear that it doesn't really matter in the end that much, if at all. But what does matter is if we've learned how to stay open in a radical way, sensitive, and have learned how to be sensitive no matter what's happening, not only when we're in a favorable conditions, but even when it's really confusing or really painful or disturbing. I mean, isn't that, isn't that a noble aspiration for us to have? To be wide open, clear, stable, responsive, nimble, nimbly responsive, right? That's what sensitivity allows. It allows like one of the more famous lines, not from the time of the Buddha, from several centuries later in China, one of the great teachers in China was asked to summarize the Buddha's teachings or path in a very simple way. And he had this great answer. He said, an appropriate response, right? So, Somebody who's practicing this path of awakening that the Buddha taught that can be distinguished by an appropriate response. That there's a nimbleness in how that person lives their life moment to moment, and that in observing them, we see that the response, what they say, what they don't say, what they do, what they don't do, is appropriate. It fits. Why? Because they're awake, right? They're sensitive. They're, it's like having roots into the moment, that sensitivity. Both depth in terms of the subtlety of what's here and now, but also breadth in the sense of the context, the history, where we've been, where we're going, right? So it's, it's both the, the connection to the surface and the continuity, the history, and the subtlety of what's being felt, what's moving in the heart, what's in the body, feeling the instincts, the more primitive instincts, not shy, not sort of sentimental. That's why I like the word, even though it's a little overused. You know, I like the word, both the word being intimate, but also the word being real with experience. And as a way of pointing to a mind that's not bound by concept, by our idea of what's happening. But being real means 
Like, I don't, I'm not projecting anything on my life or on this situation or on what's happening. I'm just taking it as it actually is being experienced right now. Not as I think, not in terms of my idea, but in terms of my actual experience of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching, right? And less dependent on mental constructions. And that connection, right, that sensitivity is hard. And so over the last number of weeks and continuing for several more weeks, maybe even into December, I thought it'd be good for us to really look at thinking. Because it's really, thinking is the alternative to being sensitive. We feel safe when we're thinking about things. Not, not all thoughts are bad because I'm using thoughts and words and I'm talking about the value of sensitivity and about the warning or the concern about being lost in thought. So we can use thoughts in skillful ways. But we want thoughts to point in the direction of our heart, our mind being sensitive, being open, which means it's an exposure because our mind is used to framing our experience in terms of our idea of what's happening. But if I'm really going to be sensitive to the moment, then the the direct knowing, the direct experience can't be distorted or confused by the idea that I have. Like if I told you, practice opening now, right now, to being at common ground. What is it like to be here now? So any idea you have of common ground or the mental image of the place or whatever emotional opinion you have, quality you have, you like it, you don't like it, actually can get in the way of just settling. Well, this is what it's like to be a common ground. You know, the body's like this, seeing is like this, hearing's like this, feeling emotion is like this. You don't need a story to be intimate, to be real with the experience, right? You don't, and generally speaking, a, a mental image or a thought, a story about common ground would only get in the way of being real, being intimate, being connected. But we're so used to deep depending or assuming that the idea is more powerful than the sensitivity. Like the idea of who I am as opposed to just being connected. So I want to start talking, and I'll take a couple weeks to go through this particular sutta. Vitaka Santana Sutta it's, is the Pali phrase, and it means, uh, it's translated in different ways. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates that as the removal of distracting thoughts. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times our superficial sense is that the Buddha only says one thing. Well, just be aware. Thinking is just thinking. But as I'm sure, hopefully you've noticed, that means you're paying attention. Noticing that thinking is just thinking doesn't make thinking go away. And often we just get lost in thoughts. And then we no longer know we're just, it's just thinking, right? We're just 
so absorbed in thinking that the mind or wisdom is unaware that thinking is happening. That's pretty much how it is most of the day. Thinking is happening, but there's no space in the mind, no wise space that knows thinking is happening. Isn't that true? How many moments today was the mind clearly aware? Oh yeah, it's just thinking happening. Honestly, how many moments? Zero? One or two? A couple times. If you sat this morning, if you did your formal meditation, maybe several dozen moments in the sit where there was a simple, clear recognition, oh, just thinking being known. It's just that mental activity we call thinking as a present moment phenomena. So in that moment, the wisdom is aware thinking without being confused or caught up in the content of the thoughts. But wisdom still understands the content. Like I can't even now, because I've done it so many times, I can be here talking like you could be talking to a friend, and I can be aware of the sound of my voice, I can be aware of the meaning, the words that I'm speaking, and I can be aware that I'm aware. Right? I can be mindful that all of this mental stuff, mental activity stuff is happening even at the same time being somewhat coherent. So being aware that thinking is happening, initially, like one of the things people report when they're given the instruction, see if you can be mindful of thinking, is that as soon as I try to be mindful of thinking, it goes away. Have you noticed that? It's like all of a sudden it's quiet up there. You know, it's like tuck, 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 tuck. And then you said, I'm going to be aware. There's nothing there. (laughs) And then, you know, initially we think, that's got to be the solution. If I'm aware, all my thoughts will go away and then I'll be happy. I won't be oppressed by my thinking mind. But, you know, and then all of a sudden we we notice, right? We're thinking about not thinking (laughs) and how great it is to not be thinking. And then we realize, oh, that's thought. Oh, no. (laughs) Trapped again. Because the interesting thing about thoughts, see, part of thinking, thinking exists on many gradations of subtlety. So obvious thoughts, more subtle. And so there's, there's all these sort of avenues of thinking. So as soon as we have the thought, I'm going to be aware of thinking, right? we establish the one who's aware over here. Like we sort of locate it. That's a thought. Sensing yourself as the knower or the observer in a place, that's just a story that I'm the observer and I'm back here. And these are the thoughts and they're up here. right? So then the observer starts to talk to itself. Like, hey, I'm the observer and I'm observing thoughts. But it's not aware that that's just thinking. So it's tricky. So a lot of what we do, like the the basic move when we say just be aware of thoughts is the knowing mind needs to be established somewhere. And the best place for the knowing mind to be established is in calmness or tranquility, which, of course, isn't always so easy to come by (laughs) in our agitated mind and agitated world. You know, we sit down and our mind is kind of Wiry. So that's why we use a lot of calming techniques. It's not an end in itself. But from the place of being calm, like 
what we did today, listening to the bell, bell it's, for most people, it's calming. Because if we're really doing that wholeheartedly, it's not triggering a lot of greed, anger, and delusion, the things that agitate the mind. So the mind settles down. And then after we listened to the bell, we were doing that sort of calming technique, breathing in, sensitive to the whole body, breathing out, sensitive to the whole body. That's also kind of calming for most people, especially if you really do it. Right? Like, no, 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 honey, we're doing this. Just stay right with the breath and body sensations. Just keep remembering, keep tuning in. It's really the art of not forgetting, keeping the present moment in mind. And the way we keep the present moment in mind, we create a gateway, like, so just feel your breath or just feel the sensations of the body sitting. Just don't forget, stay there, stay there. So there's even some thought, but all the thoughts are in the service of staying connected to the present moment, right? Gathering, gathering, connecting, connecting. And that really simplifies the mind. The mind's more unified, starts to feel tranquil. So then when thought does arise, the mind is in a more gathered, more centered, more whole place, and it's easier to notice thought as this independent, so to speak, arising. It's like, it's not me, it's something knowing is knowing, right? And it's a different relationship to the thought. Then we can start to recognize thought. That's what we call being mindful of thought. From a place of balance, from a place of tranquility or calm, not perfect calm, but relative calm and tranquility, then the mind, wisdom in the mind can see, oh yeah, that's just a thought. It doesn't, it isn't as seductive, not some thoughts are, of course, but generally speaking, thoughts are less seductive when the mind is pretty stable and calm and tranquil. Oh yeah, it's just a thought. In the same way, it's very hard to recognize a thought when the mind is agitated and already flitting about with different thoughts. There's no way the mind is really going to see a thought as it actually is. Just the mental phenomena that arises and passes. It's not going to happen. So what do we do in those cases? So in this discourse, the Buddha lays out five ways. And we'll spend a couple weeks going through these five strategies for removing distracting thoughts. And they start like the, the strategy with the least psychic investment would be just being aware. But that doesn't always work because the mind doesn't have enough tranquility to just see thought as thought. So the next strategy, which has some psychic, you know, it, it takes some volition. Because being aware ultimately can be effortless. Knowing the knowing quality in the mind or the knowing capacity of the mind is just part of the mind. You don't have to specifically do knowing right now to hear my voice. Like, is there anybody actually making an effort to know? Knowing just happens. So when mindfulness is balanced and stable and there's calm, then practice, you'll sense practice moving in the direction of being more and more effortless. But sometimes there's not enough balance and calm. So the first strategy is to replace the thoughts that are afflicting the mind, right? Or to substitute the thoughts with the 
you could say, the opposite kind of thought. Because generally speaking, when our mind is obsessive, spinning, lost in thought, that mental activity, that thinking is being driven by one of three motivations. The motivation of greed, the motivation of aversion, which includes like ill will and hate and fear, boredom, irritation. So there's a lot of different flavors of aversion, right? Liking is the greed, not liking is the aversion, and delusion. Delusion is like not connecting, not knowing what's happening, being superficial, being in denial, not connecting, right? So there's a so-called antidote for each of those. So if you have a sense that the spinning in your mind has the flavor of aversion, it's all about worry, fear, hate, something like that, then what would the opposite kind of thought be? What's the opposite of hate or kindness? So when the mind is thinking thoughts that have that are motivated by kindness, have the motive energy, intentional energy of kindness, which is to connect, to be gentle, to care. That quality of mind, remember I said at the beginning of the talk that the mind exists one mind moment at a time. So when there's a mind moment that is being shaped by kindness, then aversion doesn't fit, doesn't exist, can't exist in that mind, right? They just don't coexist. You can, again, check it out. So the way to interrupt obsessive thinking that's being driven by some fear or ill will, hate, is to find... Now, it's not about loving the person that is in the middle of your thoughts of hate or thoughts of aversion. If you're in traffic and you're fuming about the traffic, it's not about loving the traffic. It doesn't matter what the content of your loving thoughts are. If you bring your cat to mind or your grandson to mind or your, you know, whatever, and you have in the whole experience of the mind in that moment, whether it involves mental images or thoughts or felt sense, it doesn't matter. As long as it's being shaped by kindness, then the cycle is broken. The, the, it's been interrupted. Now, it's almost too good to be true, and this is why a lot of people don't do it, because when we are angry or irritable or grumpy or have a lot of fear and anxiety, one of the things that defines that kind of mind is we really believe in it. We believe our anxiety is justified or our hate is justified or rage is justified, and we don't want it interrupted because it's disconcerting. When I'm on a roll of self-righteousness, it's disconcerting if my mind just suddenly drops it and remembers that my cat's at home, and I actually am quite fond of my cat, and my partner too, <laughs> and my house. I mean, even inanimate objects. You know, it's like, you know, that we have this safe, comfortable place to live in. I'm very appreciative of that. I have a lot of gratitude. A lot of appreciation. And by remembering that, it breaks the cycle. 
or that we have a place that the community has built over the years, a really nice meditation center, that just innumerable forces coming together, little donations, bigger donations, so much volunteer labor, and we get this nice place where we don't have to charge, you know, that people just give when they want to give, and somehow we meet the expenses and support the staff and teachers. That makes me happy too. And that kind of kindness or compassion or whatever breaks the cycle. And so this is for your homework for this week. Check out this first antidote when you feel that you're kind of generally your mind is in this groove being mostly defined by aversion, fear, anxiety, hate, whatever. Then just strategically see if you can bring to mind some thoughts that involve, that depend on kindness, authentic kindness. Kindness is like caring, willingness to connect, willingness to say yes to someone or some situation that you have some kindness or love for, some goodwill about. And then sustain that until the momentum to go back to the aversion has been broken. It may take several moments. You may do the kindness for a few moments and then get sucked back in. But don't give up. Because if you break it enough times with enough persistence, you'll be free of its grip for a while. You will have broken the cycle. Because the mind is an impersonal but natural process. It depends on momentum. And if you throw cold water on the momentum of anger, it's gone for a while until the you know, the particular supporting conditions re-stimulate the anger. And then, you know, then, but now you've got a technique. Now let's take the other two. So let's say our mind is, our thinking mind is being governed by greed. Wanting this, really wanting something to happen in our life or wanting to get something or wanting to fix. The kind of, if only, then I'll be happy. If only I get this together. If only I get into shape then I'll be happy. When I get into shape, when I do this, when I get my, a good meditation practice going, then I'll be happy. So there's a lot of greed. Now just before I say, and some of you know the answer, but what's the antidote? What throws cold water on greed, the greedy mind? Whatever the greed's about, what throws cold water on it? Knowing what makes being obsessed with wanting, unsustainable. Any thoughts? Hmm? Yeah, generosity is the opposite. But something, knowing something, makes it really hard to continue with craving, with wanting. It doesn't last, right? So if you bring to mind the reality of impermanence, that everything comes and goes, not just stuff, some stuff. Everything comes and goes. Nothing can be held. One of the things we chant in the Buddhist tradition is, everything that I love, all the things that are beloved to me, will become otherwise, will be taken from me. Right? We don't take anything with us. Right? So when we're like, oh God, when I get a new car, then we remember, you know, cars get old and they fall apart, you know, or when I get a new iPhone, or when I get a new partner, or when I get a, it's like everything comes and goes, absolutely everything. 
it's like one of the things in the tradition, like when we really get that, it's really hard to stay mad at people when we know that it won't be long before they'll be in the grave. It'll be long and gone, right? It's really hard to sustain anger knowing that. And it's and it makes it a lot easier. It doesn't mean we're not going to go eat something delicious or watch something funny on, you know, on TV or do something fun, take a vacation because it will end. But it changes it when we know it, it's going to end. It's like that vacation's not going to. It's you know it may be really great, but it's not going to mean much in the big picture. If I remember that it ends, you know or the meal will end. I'll go home, I'll have something nice to eat. But you know, what? that's 10 minutes, and then it's over. So when you find yourself spinning with desiring, then bring the reality of impermanence to mind. The impermanence of that particular thing, or just generally that everything comes and goes. And you can just, like as a mantra, just repeat that a few times. You know what, honey? Everything comes and goes. Everything arises, lasts, and then falls away, passes away. There are no exceptions to this rule. No exceptions to this. And even if whatever I get that I want, you know, but at some point it will be left behind. That's just the very nature. We all know this, but we don't reflect on it. And notice how it breaks the cycle of whatever you think if only, then I'll be happy, cannot be sustained in the mind that understands that everything comes and goes. It's like, oh, so what am I going to do with this life? Like I've been thinking a lot, it's sort of a standing joke now, like when I get that perfect place in the woods, but not too much in the woods, with some open space too, but no bugs. Not too far north, so it's really cold, right? but far enough away so there's nobody around. But I don't want a long driveway that I have to plow, right? So it's got to be close to a plowed road, but nobody around. You know, it's like all these ridiculous conditions. This is how the if only is. You know, and then you realize like the impermanence of that. Like even if you make it nice, wood rots. You know, houses get old. Roofs need to be changed. Paint needs to be repainted. Joseph lived forever in IMS. Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, a well-known teacher here in the West, and he, with some others, started Insight Meditation Society in the middle of Massachusetts, a really great meditation retreat center. And uh, for many years, he lived there in the building at the retreat center. They had a room for him right above the meditation hall. And it was you know, not ideal. And finally, uh, a bigger donor... Uh, donated some money for uh, two little townhouses for him and Sharon Salzburg, which they built right next to the retreat property. And he lives there now. And he was, you know, he kind of talked about, oh, I've got to decide on the fixtures and this. And like, it's like never ending. And finally, moves in all the way he likes it. And then he realized, like, even if he really takes care of the place, it gets dusty. You know, there's like, there's no like place where you're done. It's always changing. It's never like you never get to that place of if only then. You never get there. So that's what you contemplate when the mind is obsessed with greed. You just contemplate how there's no end. 
It never ends. It's always becoming something else. It's never that point of permanent satisfaction that always goes away because something else, the dust comes, or this changes, this goes away, and you've got to do it again, or you need something more. How many delicious meals have we had in our lives? And yet it always seems like the next delicious meal is going to make a difference. But if we reflect on how many meals have come and gone, how many interesting movies or books we've read. And it's not to sort of, there's a difference between depression and nihilism and the joy of dispassion. Dispassion really means in a spiritual sense, like knowing that the next thing is not going to do it. Doesn't mean we don't have that we have to reject the next thing, that we don't have a delicious meal or watch something funny. We just do it with wisdom, knowing that it's not gonna fix it forever. It's just gonna be what it is, a few moments of joy, of ordinary pleasure that we get from that particular experience. So then there's no betrayal or disappointment when we realize we're sort of back in the same place of wanting something else. And now I want this. There's a funny story. I I worked in Minneapolis public schools when I first moved to town because I needed to earn a living. This is, it was about six years before there was enough Donna generosity to kind of support myself and other teachers here at the center. And uh, so I worked in the schools, and, um, and I, was, uh, I was a behavior specialist in one of the schools, and there was a third-grade teacher, and uh, he was just talking for weeks about getting a, a really fancy motorcycle. I don't even know how people sit in those. It's like one, you've got to sort of be down. And uh, he finally, his wife, he's got, you know, had several kids and his, you know, it's not, not a great thing for a family person to have. They're kind of dangerous. And finally he got it. And then about a week or a couple weeks after he got it, and he, he subscribed to these motorcycle magazines. I don't know anything about motorcycles, but, you know, he would show me these things. And, uh, and he, about two or three weeks later, he's finally got the motorcycle he's wanted for so long. And sure enough, you see where this is going. There's another motorcycle in the magazine. I want that one now. <laughs> and he knew it was ridiculous. He knew it was crazy. But he couldn't, st- because that's what his mind was used to, craving. It wasn't used to being content with the motorcycle he has. It was used to being discontent. Wanting is the habit of the mind, not contentment with what we have. If we want to be content with what we have, that's what we need to cultivate. But we don't. We cultivate if only. So we counter that by cultivating the reality of impermanence. And see how it takes the wind out of the sails of greed. Throws cold water on greed. And then the last is delusion. I'll make this quick. When the mind is distracted and denial superficial, we do what we practiced a little bit with at the beginning where we just train the mind or encourage the mind to connect with something straightforward and simple. Have an authentic, immediate connection with life. The body feels like this. Seeing is like this. Hearing is like this. It doesn't matter what sense gate it is. What matters is just connecting with something non-conceptual. 
walk and just walk. Or if you're seeing when you walk, just see. When you're hearing, just hearing being known. And this, like when our mind is spinning with doubt and distraction, dependent on denial, superficiality, it really breaks that cycle when we realize that it's safe to connect. One thing I try to do every day, I'll leave it with this point and then open it up, is just to align down meditation. So usually I try to do it in the middle of the day, after lunch often. And I'll just lie down, generally not on a bed. It's too comfortable. So just something that's relatively comfortable, a little pillow for the back of the head, throw a blanket over yourself. And just do a lying down meditation. Take advantage of the comfort and just die a little bit. And just connect with the experience, the relatively pleasant experience of lying down. It isn't comfortable after five or ten minutes, depending on your body. But for the first several minutes, it's pretty comfortable if you've been busy doing your day just to lie down on a piece of carpet or something, a a mat. And use that and just have a real relationship with the sensations of lying down, which is, like I said, relatively pleasant. And, And just sustain, like let everything die, everything else die. You're not worried about this. You're not planning that. You're just connecting. And you'll see that all of the unresolved doubts you have about this and that, all the choices you feel oppressed about that you have to make, all that disappears. Because all the body knows, all the mind knows is touching is like this, or sensation is like this. Feeling the body lying is like this. And it's interesting, that direct connection is enough. We don't need to know who to vote for or you know, whether the country is about to move into a glorious new phase or we're going to sink into some hell realm. Right in that moment, it's okay not to answer questions that the mind might cre- create or have created because there's no doubt that the body or the moment is like this now. And we really take advantage of that clarity, that non-delusion. Because part of the expression of delusion is thinking that the answers, I'm sorry, the questions our mind raises need an answer. A lot of the times we don't have answers, and that's okay. And one of the ways to, to break the cycle of thinking we need an answer is just to connect with reality, to take a walk and just do that or to pet your dog and just do that. Just be there in that experience and let everything else go. And then your relationship to all those unanswered questions, unresolved things in your life shifts because you've made peace with it all being unresolved yet, that it's okay. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to resolve some of those things or make some choices, but you're okay not making them, so your attitude about making choices or doing things is going to be a lot lighter because of touching into this non-delusion. Again, the delusion is thinking that there are answers to everything or there's a right answer. There's an answer in the sense that you can choose and then that's the answer, but we never have perfect knowledge. We just 
make the choices we make. And that's a lot lighter than thinking we need the right and we need everyone else to agree with us. That's called health. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from several of you. We have about seven minutes, eight minutes. Questions or experiences from your own practice you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, start us off, Carlos. Hi. Uh, thank you, Mark, for the talk. And uh, it reminded me, the other day I was reading uh, a bulletin board that I read usually of programmers. Um, of what? Programmers. Oh, programmers. Uh, computer programmers. And, the, and people post uh, articles and people ask questions. General. And there was this person that uh, very honestly he was saying that um, so I make a good living, so I have this job and stuff. But I'm obsessed with making money. I don't know what's going on with me. Uh, he was asking for help with this. And so I keep on, whenever I have two minutes, I read something about millionaires and all these people making money. So people were advising different things. But um, one of the things that we're saying is that just give away money. Just so, And the thinking was teach your, that, that would teach your brain that you are fine, so you don't have, so, um, now, one thing that happens to me is that all this, um, when I'm meditating, thinking being known, like this guy was recognizing that, right, it was, that's mm-hmm. just my mind, um, many times I feel like, uh, thinking being known, I can practice it when I practice and stuff, but, but, there are some worries that those are real. Yeah. Those are very hard for me to, 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 to say just, that's just thinking. Yeah, but, but, but before you go to that's just thinking, it's better to agnose. So it's always about what's predominant. Sometimes the thinking, the actual content of the thinking, isn't what's predominant. It's what you said, Carlos, and you recognize it. This is real or this is me. So that we call attachment. So it'd be better to notice that the mind is attached to the thoughts as opposed to the thoughts, that it's invested, that they're meaningful to me. So you're, you're actually noticing the way the mind, in a sense, is gripping or dependent or attached to the thoughts. The thoughts aren't, aren't actually as relevant as the mind being attached. Because some thoughts, the mind come up in our mind, the mind's not that attached to. But some thoughts were very invested. So to be aware, to be awake of what's happening in the present moment, you have to connect with the attachment because it's more predominant than the thought. It's more relevant than the thought. Yeah, thanks, Carlos. Who'd like to go next? Questions or reflections from your own practice around thinking? So the question I have is, um, I've done that substitution in my uh, non-meditating life, but does that work when you're meditating to substitute, or or does it make you think more? Well, this is when awareness isn't, the momentum of mindful awareness isn't strong enough, then we need a secondary strategy. And there are going to be even more involved strategies that we'll cover. But yeah, so when it's not working just to be aware of it, then you're using thought, but strategically, you're using the opposite thought, so to speak. So if you're obsessed and it's flavored with anger, 
bring up a thought of kindness. If it's obsessing with greed, reflect on impermanence. If it's delusion, just kind of being lost, it's not really about anything, it's about being disconnected, not being real, see what in the present moment the mind is willing to connect with and really appreciate grounding, connecting with some ordinary, pleasant if one's available, but some ordinary experience. Just connect, just get real. Feel the hands in the sink as you're washing dishes, for example. Like you're sitting there washing dishes, but you're like obsessing about money, and you realize, you know, or deluded about something, and just come into the experience, because that can break the spell. Yeah, thanks, Kathleen. Time for one or two more. What else comes to mind? What's your experience with thought, how how you've worked with it, what has helped or not helped? I don't actually know how much this fully applies, but I've been revisiting a book called Drawing from the Right Side of the Brain that I used to learn to draw when I was 13. And what I take away from the book is, is that your left brain is... Uh, where your language drives from and that's the way in which we explain the world around us and so the practice of drawing is not really the author believes it's not really just a random talent that people get that you can train your brain to acquire the skill and it's learning to quiet the left brain which is the most dominant based on how we function in this world with time and language. And so if you can quiet the left brain and trigger the right brain, you can learn to uh, explain what you're seeing through a different language, essentially, if that makes any sense. So you start to, rather than describing something with a line you start to see the negative space. And the negative space that was nothing before becomes something. So you detach from the rules that you used before, and then all of a sudden, the skill evolves. And I think that that mode of getting into that space is very applicable um, in a lot of different practices of in our life. I think it kind of transfers into meditation. And I think if you can kind of sort of go to that that negative space that's really a useful tool. Yeah, Makes yeah. Sense. it's a really good point. What's your name? Gina. Gina, thanks Gina. Yeah, and the interesting thing though, even though I, I kind of agree with what you were saying, is your explanation right there was left brain, right? Just kind of mapping it all out, right? So in Buddhism was very much about integration, because it's just nature, these two, all the binary things, the masculine, the feminine, the left brain, the right brain, you know, type A's, you know, aggressive types, assertive types, receptive types. What we want is to understand what's moving and, and just see it as a natural process and really kind of open the doors and windows so the mind like going back, and this is a good place to end, that comment from that Chinese Zen master, an appropriate response. Because the appropriate response is really specific to what's happening in the moment. 
And we want to be able to be left brain when that's helpful and right brain when that's helpful. Or we want to be able to manifest fem- what we would normally call feminine qualities when that's the appropriate response and masculine qualities or some mix when that's the appropriate response. We don't want to be stuck one way. We want to be really nimble. And that's really where the practice takes us. It's really this integration. One of the feelings we have when our sit, when our practice is settled, is we feel very integrated. I mean, it's an actual feeling, the body-mind integration and the different qualities of the mind. It's like everybody is... uh, It's actually one of the definitions of samadhi, that unification of mind, is every part of the mind is working to the same end, right? Which is, you could say, an appropriate response to the moment, a skillful response to the moment. Thanks for sharing, Gina. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words, just enough time for one or two breaths together. Listen into the silence. Thanks for your comments tonight, and thanks for coming. Nice to be with everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.